My name is John Colburn. I am the Minister of Congregational Life and Outreach here at Grace. Um, I always look forward to my opportunities to preach with you guys. Uh, um, it's just a, a privilege that few people in, in my stage in our career get the chance to do as much as I do, and I'm honored uh, by that, both by Joel's trust in me and the elders, as well as y'all's faithfulness to endure a young and learning preacher. Uh, I think it is a hard work uh, as a member of a church to do that, so thank you. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, uh, we began a new series in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts follows the gospel of Luke almost directly on to the end. It, in many places, it's an unbroken work. And what we begin to see is that as God in Jesus began to do many things in the book of Luke, he will continue to do many things throughout the book of Acts. And in fact, some commentators have said that, you know, some people call the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, but there are also many people who call the book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Um, and you'll begin to see some of why in our text for today. So uh, where we left off, the apostles were kind of gathered around the ascended Jesus, and they were looking up into heaven, and you can just feel their mouths kind of open at what they just experienced. And an angel turns and looks to them and invites them into a new moment, the mission of the church, the mission of the gospel, that there is things for them to do here and now on earth, even as Christ has ascended into heaven. And if you're at that point in the story, you might begin to wonder, but what are they? And how would we have any power to do these things now that Jesus has gone? And Acts chapter 2 will answer those questions for us. So I'm going to begin, as we do, uh, with a reading from the Old Testament and pair that with Acts chapter 2. So if you would listen closely, this is the word of the Lord from Ezekiel chapter 37. So I prophesied, this is Ezekiel, as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open up your graves and raise you from them, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from them, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. These are all the disciples. And by the way, this one place was probably a room that didn't have air conditioning. So you and the apostles experiencing very similar things right now. And suddenly, 
there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided as tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And we're amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes." the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are here because we believe that through your Holy Spirit and by the word that you have put in front of us, you are making yourself known to us. So we ask that you would make yourself known to us in a new way again here tonight that we would be able to see your power, your glory, that we would be able to know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has called us according to his purposes, and that you would transform us into your own likeness by your word. Speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. There was a man named Reginald Fessenden. He was born on October 6th in 1866 in East Bolton, Quebec, And I have never talked about a Canadian before in my sermon intro, so checking a new box. He was the eldest son of Reverend Elisha and Joseph Fessenden, and get this, Clementina Trenholm, and he was one of their four children. Elisha Fessenden was a Church of England and Canadian minister, and the family moved to a number of postings throughout the province of Ontario. And the reason I tell you about Reggie, as as I have decided he would like to be called, is that Reggie was the inventor of what we call the AM radio. So there was a period in time where people were talking through Morse code. You would kind of punch this little button, and if you've seen Westerns, you know it. A telegraph would take those little dots and beeps and move it across our country through a wire. Someone else at the other end who knew Morse code would listen to the dots and the beeps, and then they would begin to sketch out a message and deliver it to you on paper. 
This was slow, inconvenient, required wires to cross an entire country. It was, it was a hard mode of, of communication. But Reginald, Reggie, uh, began to experiment with this new type of, of wireless telegraph system. And on Christmas Eve in 1906, as he was doing his experimentation, some boats about 45 miles off the coast of Brant Rock, Massachusetts, heard a broadcast on their wireless telegraph system. And rather than dots and beeps, they heard, for what we believe to be one of the first times in all of recorded history, a voice. And Reggie Fessenden was reading a passage from Luke chapter 2 about the birth of Jesus Christ, and he played his viola, uh, and he played O Holy Night. And as far as we know, that's the first recorded transmission over radio waves. And I, I kind of tell you all this because this is a moment where everything would be different. Communication would totally change. Soon Calvin Coolidge and Winston Churchill and FDR would be speaking into these little boxes and everyone would hear them in their living room. Rather than traveling to DC or waiting for the newspaper to write down anything important that happened, you could hear it in the moment. And from there, you know how it goes. We invent television and we invent internet. Mass communication changed everything about the way the world worked. And if that's what happened through the radio in mass communication, I'm telling you that this moment here in Acts chapter 2, we begin to see a new era dawning, something after which nothing would ever be the same. God's Holy Spirit has fallen on his church. And as we begin to look through the story the narrative for tonight, what I want to walk through is I just want to talk about what just happened. You can tell the people there are, are really confused. So, so what did we even just read about? We're going to ask ourselves, what does it mean? Like, why would this happen in this way to these people? And I'm going to try at the end to take some time to talk about what this might mean for us, for our hearts, and, and for our souls. And, and just as a spoiler... If you don't hear anything else I say tonight, here's what I'm going to try to convince you. That in the falling of the Holy Spirit, in the Spirit of God, one thing that we're given is that we're never alone. That we are never alone. Another thing, in the Spirit, the Lord is the one who's at work in us. And in the Spirit, we can really never fail. So in the Spirit, we're not alone in the Spirit, the Lord is the one who works, and in the Spirit, we cannot fail. So what happened? What happened here in Acts chapter 2? What's going on at Pentecost? Now, for those of you who don't know, and I would assume that's many of you, I certainly didn't until I went to seminary, Pentecost is apparently a Jewish holiday before it was a Christian one. Uh, it originated in, among Jewish communities as a celebration of the first fruits. They would all get together on the first kind of moment of the harvest. They would begin to eat the new fruits of the summer. They would, they would feast on them, and they would celebrate of the goodness of the Lord to deliver a, a harvest. And as time went on, uh, that moment of the first fruits of the harvest, they began to connect that that was about 50 days after Passover. And the name Pentecost comes from this kind of 50 days. And if you remember Passover in the Jewish tradition, it comes from when the Lord delivered them from slavery, that the angel of death came, and they, he passed over their doors. And so as the religious observance in the Jewish communities developed, they began to celebrate the Passover and the giving of the law on Sinai 
as part of this Pentecost celebration. So they would eat the first fruits and they would remember together when God appeared in power and in glory to give the law to his people. So that's the background a little bit on, on Pentecost. And I think, this is, I think this is relevant. I think the Spirit knows what he's doing here. And I think Jesus knows what he's doing here and choosing this moment for the Spirit to fall. So let's look together again at the first couple of verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Now, something that would send your kind of ears up if you are an avid reader of the Old Testament is when God is described with fire, there's kind of a unique way that God has presented himself in fire throughout the, the history of his people. If you remember in Abraham's story, he began to kind of make this sacrifice before the Lord. The Lord had promised to him a covenant, and, and God himself shows up as a torch of flame and passes through the sacrifice. And Abraham follows him. If you remember the story of Moses, Moses is wandering in the wilderness. He comes across this burning bush. And in the fire of that bush, the glory and the person of God is revealed. If you remember when God's people are running from, from the Egyptians and, and, and Moses takes the moment and the Red Sea splits, the Lord's presence, like a pillar of fire, passes through and they follow it. When they arrive at Mount Sinai and the Lord gives his law to Moses, again, we see the Lord appearing in fire and smoke. Throughout the Old Testament, when the Lord is pictured and pictured with fire, we see this again in Isaiah when he talks about his tongues, that, that the Lord in fire is his glorious presence being made known to people. He arrives in his fullness and in his glory, and the way that his people see that is in fire. So we have this moment, these people kind of gathered in this room, and the Lord appears in his fullness. The Lord appears in fire. The Lord appears in glory. And for these people celebrating God's arrival on Sinai, they would recognize that this arrival in tongues of flame also seems to be this Lord. And whenever we see the Lord in fire, I've noticed a couple things about those stories. To put it in short, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but where God arrives in fire, whether it's with Elijah or all the other things we've talked about, he's arriving to make promises to his people. He's arriving to deliver them. He's arriving to empower them. And so in this moment, what we should expect is that this is the Lord, and he is arriving to make promises to his people, to deliver his people, and to empower his people. When we talk about tongues and tongues of fire in particular, I, I imagine most of you, like me, think, well, that's Pentecostalism. John, I know that. I have an uncle. We, we all have an uncle. And for what it's worth, I think we have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters who worship in Pentecostal spheres. It's the fastest growing church in the world. Um, but that's actually not exactly what I'm talking about here. It's yes and it's no. When these individuals, if we look closely, when these individuals are filled with the Spirit, as it says, it says they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them uh, utterance. And then we see this moment where Luke uh, begins to say that there's this huge multitude of Jews, and he does his best, like, James Spann impression and names every little city and town in the area. And he says, they're all here. 
There's all these different people. They speak all these different languages. But when we hear tongues talked about by Paul, for example, in something like 1 Corinthians 12, he'll, he'll discuss the fact that there are interpreters that should be present, that you would be speaking in tongues, and it's important that someone would understand, and if not, there needs to be an interpreter there to understand. And this story's a little bit different. When the Spirit arrives in power here, he gives them words that everyone in the, in the situation understands. They hear them in their own languages. So it's not so much that I want to differentiate what they teach about tongues and what we teach about tongues. It's more that I just am showing that in this, in this passage, it's something a little bit different. The Lord is giving a unique kind of miracle, a unique kind of power to these people. And we should be attentive to see why he's doing exactly what he's doing. I think the third thing that stands out to me about this early part of the passage is the ways that individuals begin to, to mock them. It's mocked by those who, who don't receive this gift and, and don't understand it. Now, again, this is not something the apostles would be confused by or shocked by or stunned by. They have been mocked repeatedly uh, throughout their following of Jesus, throughout the death of Jesus, after believing in the resurrection of Jesus, through this gathering. This is not new to them, to be misunderstood and to be mocked. But I think it's another illustration of the fact that even when the Lord works in majesty and in power, not everyone can see it. Not everyone responds in the ways that feel like an, a, a, a joyful reaction to the movement of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but as a Christian, there are times when I'm like, oh, don't you see this wonderful thing that the Lord is doing? And people respond with confusion or, or disillusion. Uh, you are not alone. Even here, the apostles, at the very moment when God's spirit is falling, are experiencing this kind of mocking. So that's a little bit of depth to this picture. We have these apostles, the Spirit comes, they speak in tongues, and they are mocked. And then Peter begins to preach. Peter begins to read the book of Joel, and he says, hey, just so you're clear, this amazing thing that just happened, even you guys who are laughing, this is a fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said many, many generations ago. So that's what happened. But I guess the question then becomes, cool story, but why does this matter? So as, as someone who's trying to kind of come to grips with this all week, why does this story matter? Why does this thing that I put together on felt boards at a VBS when I was in sixth grade, like, why does that matter? The first thing I see is I'm thinking about John, the, the book of John, where Jesus in, 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 in chapters 14 to 16 is beginning to talk about the fact that he is going to go away that he is going to leave. And the disciples are immediately confused. They're not sure how they might begin to do the things that Jesus is promising. This kingdom is coming. There are works that need to be performed. We need to usher in this reign of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus begins saying he's going to go away. And in chapter 14, he makes an interesting promise. He says, A, it will be better for you if I go away, which is a bold claim. And then B, he explains that by saying, and I will send to you the Holy Spirit. I'll send to you the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus is crucified and, and, and dies, I wonder if the, the disciples were confused that the Holy Spirit didn't kind of immediately arrive, but it didn't. The Lord was raised three days later. He ministered for 30, 40 more days and then was taken up into heaven. And at this point, we really see what Jesus had promised. His Spirit arrives. 
So the first reason that Pentecost matters for our souls is that Jesus kept his promise. And I know it's really easy for us to feel like, yeah, of course, John, God keeps all his promises. And that's a really precious truth. God keeps all his promises, but let it land on you every time he does. God keeps all his promises. And here are the disciples wondering, if Jesus is gone, how are we going to do this kingdom thing he's promised? And just in that moment, as he promised, the Spirit arrives. This matters because he keeps his promises. Another reason that I would argue this matters is that we begin to see some of what the goals of the Spirit's power are. You know, I think we we talked about a little bit the signs in John a few preaching series ago here at Grace Fellowship. And one of the things we tried to consider when we were looking at Jesus' miracles in the book of John is that Jesus has all power and all authority on heaven and earth. He could be doing anything he wants to do. So what he chooses to do over other things tells us a lot about what he's here for. So now the Spirit has arrived. This is his first scene in the narrative, his first scene in the movie. When you're introduced to a new character, you begin to learn things immediately about what this character is here for, what their goals are, what part they play in the plot. So here the Spirit arrives, and what the Spirit chooses to do by his power is going to tell us a whole lot about what the Spirit of God is about and what the Spirit of God is for. So what does the Spirit of God do, and what are the effects? Well, we talked about it. He gave them language. He allowed allowed them to speak the truths of the gospel in their own tongues and let other people hear it. So what can we learn from this? Well, I think one thing that we can learn from this is that the Spirit is here to send the good news about the wonderful works of God to the very ends of the earth. That all these people are drawn from all these different areas. The dispersion of the Jews are drawn to this place in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And in this very moment, God gives the power of the gospel to transcend boundaries and language and culture. But he doesn't do it in such a way that it it overwrites those people's languages or culture. They still speak in their own tongues. So he's going to send the unity of the gospel across the boundaries of language, of culture, of, of country, of all these different things. And in so doing, the very good news about God and his gospel will go to the very ends of the earth. So one thing the Spirit is here for is to send the gospel to the ends of the earth. Like it, another thing that the gospel accomplishes through the Holy Spirit here in this passage is the uniting of the people of God. There are all these people gathered, some who are obviously in the know that become filled with the Spirit, and and some who mock them, who who are on the outside of what's going on here, who are here to uh, criticize, to to not be part of what God is creating, this kind of people that he's creating in in this moment. And so in in this moment, the Lord marks the ones that belong to him. He marks his movement. He sets his mark upon the people that belong to him. He begins to unite for himself a people of God who understand who they are, who understand who God is, who understands who also belongs to this group of people. So part of the Holy Spirit's job, and we see this right in the immediate moment where he begins to work, is to identify and unite the church. That the people who are called according to God's purpose, it's the Spirit himself that will bring them and lock them and unite them together. I think the, and the third thing that I think is really important about what the Spirit is doing here is that the, the Spirit begins to give them these words to speak, and, and it tells us what they speak. 
It says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, when you hear about people being filled with the Spirit, um, I have had experiences before where people are filled with the Spirit and they tell me what stock to invest in or they tell me kind of the decisions that I need to make in this kind of crucial moment in my life. And I'm not saying that the Lord through His Spirit doesn't give prophetic gifts, but what I am saying is in this moment when the Spirit arrives, the kind of voice, the kind of words, the kind of testimony that the Spirit gives is the greatness and the glory of God the Father and God the Son. And that's not unique. Whenever we see the Son working, he's speaking of the glory of the Father and the Spirit. Whenever we see the Father working, he's working for the glory of the Son and the Spirit. This is what God does. The persons of the Trinity are always glorifying one another. So when the Spirit is at work, we should expect to see the glory of Jesus and the glory of God the Father being blown up big and bold and broad before the world. And that is what the Spirit has come to do. He's, he sends the gospel to the ends of the earth. He unites God's people, and he promotes God's glory in the Father and the Son, the mighty works of God. So that's the second reason it matters. We learn about what the Spirit's for. Let me tell you a little bit about another thing that I think is really fun about this passage. If you'll remember back in Genesis chapter 11, there's this story about men and all the men in the world, and, and it's after kind of the story of Noah, and they're beginning to rebuild all the things around them. And there's this story about a Tower of Babel, where all the men have come together, and, and they've put all these rocks and stones together. They've built the biggest tower they can. They say, we're going to reach the heavens. We're going to rebuild this thing that the flood broke. We can do it. Through the strengths of our arms, through our own ingenuity, we can build this tower back to God. And as the story goes, God, in that moment, gives to them all these different languages to frustrate their plans. They don't seem to be able to understand one another. They don't seem to be able to work together anymore. They suddenly splinter off into different nations and, and different cultures. They go to war with one another, and the unity of the people is broken. Don't you see how Pentecost is a bit of repairing the things that have gone wrong? In this moment, they're all speaking their own tongues and their own languages, and now they understand one another again. And what are they saying to one another in this moment? The mighty works of God. Not look at this tower we've built, not look how close we are to heaven, but in this moment, the Spirit has come, and it's beginning to fix the broken things. The Spirit arrives, and it has undone some of the things that broke back in Genesis at the Tower of Babel. Not through collapsing all languages and cultures, but by through uniting them in the goodness of the gospel. And I think the, the final thing I want to say about the importance of, of Pentecost is that it, it really, like we talked about with the radio, it, it initiates a new era, kind of a new moment in, in salvation history. I told you that Pentecost was a celebration at first of the first fruits, but eventually they began to celebrate God's giving of the law at Sinai. This moment when fire descended, God spoke to his people, he made promises to his people, his people were expected to live in a certain sort of way. And I think it's really worth us looking at the differences between what happens in Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20 when the Lord descends in glory and what happens here at Pentecost. So the first thing that stands out to me is we have a different mediator in these two stories. 
In the story of, in Exodus chapter 19, the men and women of Israel are terrified. They are afraid of this God of power and this God of glory. So they send Moses, their, their prophet, their speaker, to the top of the mountain on their behalf. And in that moment, we have a man, a man caught in between the power and holiness of God and, and the frailty and the foolishness of, of God's people at that time. We have this mediator who is a man, and as we find out later, a sinful man, one who fails to make atonement for all of God's people before God himself, as we learn about in the book of Numbers. But in this moment, we have God arrive in power and in flame. But something we just learned at the end of the book of Luke was that there is a new mediator between God and man, that there is someone who is God and man that stands between God and man, that Christ himself, who is God and man in all ways, the glory and goodness of God, now makes that communication between God and man feasible and perfect. Now the dwelling place of God is not the top of the mountain, where we send one guy up to go talk to God, and then that guy comes all the way back down and talks to us. But God's presence itself can come down the mountain and dwell in his people because of a perfect mediator, because of the perfect one that stands between God's presence and God's people. And then we see some other changes because of that. In that moment at Sinai, the people are afraid so afraid that they make a golden calf and, and Moses shatters the law. In this story, the people are delighted. They're rejoicing. This is good news. God's spirit, God's presence is now among us. We don't have to be afraid or fearful. We're receiving his power. We're enjoying his delight. We're part of his mission. The people go from being afraid to delighted. And then finally... In Sinai, we begin to see that there's a law that's given for a specific nation, and in the end, that law will illuminate the sinfulness of God's people, their failures to be obedient and faithful to him. But in this moment, when God's spirit arrives and begins saying things to God's people, the gospel is made available not to one nation, but to all nations. And the gospel is now illuminating not the sinfulness of man, but the saving power of God. So here we stand at Pentecost, and we have a new Sinai in front of us, a new mountain where God has made himself present, where God is faithfully available to his people, and where a new message, a new mission, a new way of living in faithfulness to God that is not distinct from the old way, but at least is a new way to experience this life of faithfulness to God comes to be in Pentecost. So I think that is at least a few of the reasons, and I won't torture you any longer, that Pentecost is such an important thing for Christians to understand and wrap their heads around. Because Jesus, God, he kept his promise because the Lord in his spirit is available to us to do some specific things. He'll send the gospel, he'll unite his people, and he'll promote his own glory. That here we begin to see that the spirit is to undo some of the brokenness like Babel, and here we begin to see that we're in a new era in salvation history. And from this point forward, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, this isn't the end of a kind of capsule that says, oh, and by the way, the Holy Spirit got here, and here's the story about that. This is an introduction for the whole rest of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit fell, and then everything else that happens is like a second part of that sentence. Peter's about to preach, and then the gospel's going to go to all nations, and then they're going to try to figure out how the Gentiles can be brought in, and Paul's going to go on all these journeys. All of that is kind of the second half of the sentence. The Spirit fell, and then... 
So this is an introduction for the whole rest of the book. That's why it matters. So what does that mean for us? For you and me in a hot room in Homewood, Alabama in 2022. I want to encourage you that one of the things that becomes true is that God is nearer to us than ever before. We talked about all the different administrations of God's holiness, the temple and the tabernacle, the holy of holies. But because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection, because of the giving of the Holy Spirit, we are really, truly never alone. In those dark nights, in those moments, the Lord is close at hand. Because of what Jesus has done, his spirit can be right there in and with you in all circumstances and all places. There's no enemy we face alone. There's no foe too great for us because the Lord's spirit is not in this distant place that we have to do all these ritual things to receive. The Lord's presence and the Lord's power is alive and at work in you and in us. We can have hope. We can have joy. We can have life in the Holy Spirit. What's another thing this means for us? Well, I I find it quite interesting here that this kind of presents a counter story to one that we experience all the time. If you'll think a little bit about what I call the gospel according to Disney, right? Uh, If you've seen the, these are some of my favorite movies. I'm not about to start a war on Disney. I'm not trying to end up on Instagram or some reel. Like, hey, here's this Christian pastor who hates Disney. I'm I'm not here for that. But I I do want to say that there's a certain narrative that comes through these sort of Pixar movies, these sort of Disney movies about their heroes and about the ways that these heroes accomplish their goals, right? I'm thinking of a a song, and I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do. It's time to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm picturing the Mulan sitting by her pool, asking when this reflection will show, when reality will begin to describe the real truth, the important thing about who Mulan is, what she feels inside. That'll bring the world into rightness again. If the world could just see who Mulan really was, then it would reshape itself, reform itself into something right. Lo and behold, it it does. And again, I won't make you wait through the ways that I see this in Aladdin and Lion King and Lilo and Stitch and Moana and Hercules and Jungle Book and Tarzan and whatever. These stories are saying that everything we need to fix ourselves and fix the world is hiding somewhere deep inside us. That if we will look deeper, truer, further into our own desires, our own wants, our own selves, we'll find the thing the world needs. Pentecost says exactly the opposite that God has arrived, that the power we need to transform ourselves and our souls into God's people and to transform the world into God's likeness is not within us, but without us. That it would take God himself coming near, drawing near, bringing us an external, not an internal power to be part of this mission of God. All those Disney stories are beautiful, inspiring, and in many ways at their core, they're false. But this is true. So what good is that, John? The the power's external, fine, I believe you. Well, first it means your kind of glorious self-righteousness and achievement is of no use here. 
It's the Lord at work in his people. He doesn't need you to be the hero. He doesn't need you to be the martyr. He's supplying the power. He's supplying the tools. Where God's church is at work, there's no need for your glorious self-sacrifice because the glorious self-sacrifice has already happened in Christ the Lord. You can leave that at the door. We don't need it because it's the Lord who will bring about the work through his spirit. But on the other ditch of the road, your self-loathing is not welcome either. It is the Lord who's at work. Do you really think you're so failing, so foolish, so incapable of speech, so incapable of gifts that God of all the universe can't work through you to bring about his ends? It's not needed here. You were chosen by him. You're a vessel of his Holy Spirit. I'm not concerned with the things that you think about yourself because Christ and the Father are at work through the Holy Spirit in his church and in you to bring about the end of his mission. It is the Lord who works in us. And the last thing, as we said at the beginning, is that the Spirit itself is at work and God does not fail in the things that he has promised. So if these tongues of flame, if this moment really means that God's Spirit has rested upon his church, if it really means that God in his fullness, in his power and in his glory, has set himself on this movement, this movement of apostles who are going to go and take the gospel to all nations, if he has done that, if he has begun this work, then we know for sure he will complete it. We don't have to walk around in paralysis about how we're failing in the mission that God has called us to do. We're not. Now, when we talk about God's mission, I pray that your, your souls are challenged, that you hope and imagine as we listen to Aspire all the different ways that we could be even more faithfully present and involved in our community to bring the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. But you don't have to experience some kind of external dread or anxiety that the Lord himself won't see this through. You're caught up in something, a movement, a moment, a church, that God's spirit is alive and at work in. You're caught up in something that cannot fail. So we can live, we can serve, we can hope, we can be, because it's the Lord himself who will bring the end, and the end will be good. Both these callings, the calling to you know, be a part of this transcendent mission of God. And as Joel talked about last week, a calling not just to transcendency, but to Tuesdays. These, these callings in turn will demand more of us than, than we can muster. A strength to follow Christ, a, a willingness to, to die to ourselves, a, a constant return to find joy in God and God's mercy and his righteousness. And the story here in Pentecost would tell us we need the very Spirit of God open to us, dwelling in us and with us to fuel that mission. That these tongues of fire that rested on the apostles are at work within us. That to be filled in the Spirit is to receive the Spirit of power, to be united to God's people, to never be alone, and to not fail in the works that the Lord has called you to. The Spirit is God's power to declare the gospel and God's power to live in accordance and obedience to it. The Spirit is the power that bonds us in unity with God and one another. And the Spirit is the one who will bring to us an awareness of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
power that will propel us taking that gospel to the very ends of the earth if we will just admire it, treasure it, delight in it. We will find, just like these people filled with the Spirit, that when that occurs, our mouths are full of the mighty works of God. And so that's my prayer for us as a church family as we approach this text, that the Lord would fill us with the Spirit and we would be awash and a a light with the mighty works of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask simply for your presence and your spirit. We know that we have received it for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, that you have given it to us freely of your own accord, but we, we ask for a, a more mindfulness of it, more awareness of it, a, a deeper and new sense of it. We ask that you would not uh, leave us alone, but would give us your spirit to guide us and lead us into all truth, and that it would be the very power that transcends boundaries and language, and that through us, the spirit would bring the gospel to the very ends of the earth even us right here at Grace Fellowship. We ask that we would be a part of that glorious story. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.